scripture reading this evening comes from the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. That'll be on page 1249 in the Pew Bibles, 1249, Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading the first 11 verses of the chapter. The book of Philippians written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail what is presumed to be Rome, writing to a church that he had planted many years before. Uh, I was able to have a class on this book in the seminary last year and discussed how Paul was, we learned, how Paul was writing to this church likely because they were about to face persecution or they were experiencing the beginnings of persecution. So he wrote to them to encourage them. You'll find that throughout the book if you read it constantly encourages them to rejoice. He encourages them by saying that even in his terrible situation, he's rejoicing. So this one is the final rejoice. No, it's not. It's the second to last rejoice, I believe, starting chapter 3. So starting at chapter 3, verse 1, first 11 verses. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe. For you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, coming like him in his death, that by any means possible may attain the resurrection of the dead, from the dead. So far the reading of God's word. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder, have you ever watched two people or very close friends or maybe former teammates play a sport against each other. When I was younger, back in Washington, one of my very best friends at the time loved to play basketball. I liked to play it as well. So anytime we got together, that would usually be what you could find us doing. On Sundays, he would come over, or I would go to his house. In between church services, we would find any opportunity we could to play basketball whether we had to do it on a trampoline or in the grass, dirt, rain, 
Whatever we had to do, we played basketball together. When we were old enough, one of us could drive. We then drove wherever we could to find another game of basketball. We played against each other, on the same team when we were younger against imaginary people, and when we got older, we found real people to play against. By playing both with and against my friend for so many years, I became very acquainted with the way that he played basketball. I had a pretty good idea of which direction he wanted to go, how he liked to gather himself before he shot the ball, all of these things. He learned the same things about me, I'm sure. But when we got to high school, we played on separate sports teams, but we were in the same division. So then our coaches were able to get extra scouting reports on the other player. Today in the Philippians, the Apostle Paul has a slightly different opinion of his old friends than I do of mine. While I still have a good relationship because our area of conflict was only on a basketball court, Paul's relationship with his old friends is very much more strained, probably be considered hostile, because their matter of dispute was on something a little more serious. It was, based, it was on the belief of the way of salvation. Paul, having come out of that works-focused sect of the Pharisees, knows exactly what they believe, and he wants his brothers and sisters in Philippi to be aware of it too. He knows that many of the Jews who were unconverted stressed the outward signs of circumcision and ritualistic purity as necessary for Gentile believers in addition to their faith in Christ. Paul here, in the opening verses of chapter 3, lets the Philippians in on the inside information that he has from his years living as one of the strictest of Pharisees. He wants them to learn from him, and he makes it painfully clear to them that if salvation was reliant on anything outside of Christ, he would never have had a reason to abandon his prior way of life. This evening we will look at verses 1 through 11 under the title, Paul's past life of worthless works points forward to a life of fruitful faith. Through that lens we will look at three points. Paul warns against the works of the flesh. Paul points to his former works of the flesh, and Paul rejoices in his new life found in Christ. Paul starts chapter 3 with that familiar repeated phrase in Philippians, to rejoice. This time he includes on the end of that command to rejoice in the Lord. This slight modification to the command to rejoice is significant, because Paul is about to launch into a clear condemnation against rejoicing in anything other than Christ. Christ is what Paul commands the Philippians to rejoice in because he knows that Jewish traditionalists will come in, try to lure the Philippians into a different way of salvation. This is why he says that he isn't troubled by having to say it again. He knows that it will bolster them against the false teachers, so it's not a trouble for him. In the first point tonight, we look at Paul's initial warning to the Philippians against those who he fears are going to come to try to steer the Philippians away from Christ as their only hope of salvation. You can imagine that Paul, while being away from his fledgling church in Philippi, is worried about them. The first chapter speaks of that quite clearly. 
If Jewish leaders and teachers come to the Philippians, try to smooth talk their way into the church, they could come across as very wise, learned men, easily swaying the new believers in Philippi. We could picture these Judaizers putting it very mildly and just seeming to complete what Paul might have forgot to tell the Philippians. They would say, yeah, salvation through Christ. Yes, that's very good. But do you know what's even better? Also showing your loyalty to God and His teachings to ancient Israel. If you really want to show yourselves loyal to Him, you ought really to include circumcision, the dietary restrictions, the allegiance to the old law, and these new ones that we have added in order to create an extra buffer. We can even picture a similar type of situation happening in our day. Popular wealth and prosperity preachers with their huge megachurches, their international fame, and their fancy worship styles that are trendy, very attractive to the world. To a new believer, these are very tempting to follow because from the outside, they may look just enough like a Christian worship service. They talk about God. They talk about love. They mention just enough about the Bible. It seems like they are sincere. But the truth of the matter is they keep their followers blind and illiterate in the Bible. They do so in order to keep the people from seeing that they themselves are often speaking half-truths, sometimes whole wrongs, in the name of staying relevant and popular in the culture around them. So here too, Paul wants the Philippians to watch out for Jews who love to follow Paul and cause trouble for him because of his teaching against the laws of the Jewish Sanhedrin. As one who was formerly a slave to the hopeless ideology of salvation by works and outward actions of service, Paul minces no words when he describes those who would dilute the gospel of Christ with the addition of man's fancy. Paul calls them dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. These are harsh insults to throw at a Jew. But Paul has reasons for his word choices. Dogs would be an animal that Jewish men despised because of their standing as unclean animals according to the ancient law of Moses. It was also a term often used by Jews to critique Gentiles because of their status as unclean or outside of the covenant. Paul here uses it as a stinging reminder that clean and unclean has been removed because of the finished work of Christ. Gentiles are now included in the covenant along with converted Jews. On the contrary, now those who would seek to earn salvation through works and appearances are the ones who are outside of the covenant of grace. This echoes Paul's words in Romans 3 verse 20, where he writes, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Evil workers, as the next descriptor, is another way that Paul turns words against the Judaizers. While they would have portrayed themselves as fellow workers with Paul, and those working for the kingdom, Paul calls them evil workers because of their attack on the heart of the gospel of Christ. Instead of trusting in Christ's completed work for our salvation, grasping it in faith, and living lives filled with works of thankfulness, these men would dare to imply that Christ's work was good, but now you have to earn your place through submission to the old Mosaic laws, including circumcision. 
That brings us to the final word Paul uses. It is quite literally mutilators. It's frequently brought up in the Bible how the Jewish converts struggled whether or not the Gentile believers had to be circumcised on their conversion to Christianity. This was even discussed by the apostles on multiple occasions. Paul's opinion on the matter was pretty clear. He further cements that belief here. Paul doesn't even refer to the Judaizers as circumcisers. He calls them mutilators. Again, Paul is showing his absolute unwillingness to give ground when it comes to the foundation of our salvation. Paul refuses to allow for these men to be given grace when they are refuting the efficacy of Christ's atoning blood by requiring outward signs and ceremonies that would then contribute to it. He rips the title of the circumcised away from unrepentant Jews and instead claims it for those who walk by faith in Christ. In verse 3 he says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in flesh. Paul is clear. He is authoritative. As he makes sure the Philippians know that those who would attach circumcision to the work of Christ are not helping the Philippians, but they are in fact mutilating the Philippians, both physically and spiritually, by laying upon them the heavy burden of ceremonial law. Christ took that law away. He invited his followers, Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew 11, 29 and 30. Finishing verse 3, Paul has a threefold description of the truly circumcised. Those who are circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. Paul says that the true covenant children of God, first of all, serve Him by the Spirit. We acknowledge that our pursuit of Him is only because of the Spirit's work in our heart. Pursue service out of thankfulness, not attempting to earn salvation. Secondly, our boast isn't in our circumcision or outward attempts at obedience. Paul says that the boast of the believer is in Christ, always pointing to Him as the ground of our salvation and the reason for the hope that lies within us. Finally, he says that we are supposed to be those who put no confidence flesh. Our moral integrity, though we are called to be different, is not what our confidence is founded upon. We should be grateful for the work of the Spirit that turns us towards a pursuit of God's standard of righteousness. We should strive after that righteousness with all of our hearts. Indeed, we are called to do so. To be grateful for a turning from our fleshly desires and also to continue to seek further separation from them. But that, brothers and sisters, that is not our confidence. That might be our joy, something we are extremely grateful for, but it is not our confidence. We may be able to witness faithfully to the work of the Spirit in our lives to change us, and it makes us desirous of things that are good and pleasing to God. And again, we should do so. We should bring praise and thanksgiving to God for the work of sanctification in our lives, but that is not our confidence. Paul shreds confidence that is based on moral uprightness to pieces by showing the Philippians that he used to strive after that confidence, that confidence that is found in the perfecting of self. 
In our second point, Paul explains to the Philippians how he sought after that confidence with everything that he had, but he found it to be hopeless. Following right on the heels of Paul's statement concerning the futility of confidence in the flesh, he states that if Jewish moral uprightness was able to save, he would have such a confidence. Not only did Paul have all the biological markers that identified him as one of the chosen people of old, his parents had done their very best to fulfill all the requirements and give Paul the best chance possible to be considered a covenant member through ritualistic and genealogical purity. Paul lays down the gauntlet of worthiness before any would-be Judaizers, and he tells them that if they think they have it all together, he had it all with a cherry on top. Paul's genealogy was pure as far as Hebrew blood. His tribal lineage produced the first king of Israel, which he very well may have been named after. He was circumcised on the eighth day as only a pure Hebrew child was allowed to have done to him. Those were what his parents did for him. But Paul didn't stop there. Paul took up the mantle that his parents began by aligning himself with the Pharisees, the strictest of the Jewish sects. And he pursued holiness in regard to the law with all of the passion and zeal that he could muster If there was ever going to be a self-made man, Paul was going to be it. His strict adherence to all of the Jewish laws and his zeal for the purity of the Jewish religion led him to persecute those he saw as polluting it. He persecuted the church mercilessly. Everything that could possibly be done by Paul to ensure that if salvation was was by the way of Jewish religion, apart from Christ... He had done, and he had done it to the utmost of his abilities. We can see in the three verses, 4, 5, and 6, that Paul has a pretty clear case for being an expert on the methods, motives, the Judaizers that he feared would come. He knew all of their arguments. He knew all of their requirements because he had followed them for years. He was like a player trained by a coach from the time that he could walk in the rules and the strategies of the game, only to grow up and find out that he was playing the wrong game. Paul knows exactly what all these men would come to say, teach, because it is what he believed to be true for years. But Paul's statement in verse 7 shuts down any confidence in that way of thinking. And it does so clearly, precisely. It is the slamming down of the gavel, condemnation, that attempt at salvation. By listing his accomplishments and laying down the challenge for anyone to dispute, Paul rips away the curtain that was covering the ugly truths works righteousness. Righteousness was attainable through works of the law. Paul had it. He could not have done more is essentially what he's saying when he lists his entire resume. He had everything going for him. He had been set up by his parents for success He was well on his way to making it big. He was the top of his class. It says that he studied under Gamaliel, a renowned Jewish rabbi. He was being promoted and used by the Sanhedrin to persecute the rebel Christians. But none of that mattered to Paul anymore for one very simple reason. That is Christ. 
Paul says in verse 7, which brings us to our final point, that none of that mattered anymore because Paul had come to know Christ. Not only does Paul say it doesn't matter anymore, but he actually says, I consider it loss. It's not only irrelevant and useless, but it is actually something that is a burden to him. This prior way of life is what leads the devoted apostle to say in 1 Timothy that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Just prior to that verse, Paul calls himself a violent man, a blasphemer, and a persecutor who has shown mercy because he acted in ignorance, unbelief. Paul calls the life of earning salvation through the flesh loss, ignorance, and unbelief. So what is the proper path to take? Surrounded by the world that told the Philippians they had to earn the favor of the gods, small g, is just like we are living in a world that tells you you have to merit good luck by being kind to the universe. Or if you're a good person, you'll have good karma. Just like that, Paul tells the Philippians what the replacement for that nonsense is. Paul says that he considers all of it, every single bit of it, to be lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Compared to the slavish requirements of constantly trying and failing to earn salvation through works and ceremony, Paul holds up the greatest gift that has ever been given. It will ever be. The gift of knowing Christ Jesus. Salvation in Him through faith. Verses 8 and 9 contain this glorious repetition. Paul's confession that he pursued garbage times past. He rejects it with repulsion because of the glorious truth that has been given to him freely in Christ. His salvation which he once pursued with every fiber of his being in a struggle to earn it, now given freely him. What he could never have earned because of a sinful heart, now given to him through faith, which was also given freely through the working of the Spirit. Paul goes to great pains to make that clear to the Philippians, therefore to us, that if there was a way to earn salvation, he would have been doing it, and it would have been worth it if he continued. But he was given grace on the Damascus Road, while he was fighting, kicking and screaming against the kingdom of God, he was shown the glorious grace of Christ who was completely won over. Having the wonder of grace contrasted with the futility of works, he was shown the wonderful love of the Father, that while Paul was still a sinner, Christ had died for him. Having faith now working mightily in his heart, Paul can say, verses 10 and 11, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Brothers and sisters, do you know Christ? Do you continue to strive after Christ to know Him more and more every day? Do you consider all else to be garbage, compared to the overwhelming wonder of knowing Christ, your Savior? Are we willing to rid ourselves of everything that might hinder our pursuit of Christ as our Savior? Are we willing to do that?
when there are temptations all around us every day, the moment we wake up in the morning. Psalm 20, verse 7, says that some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Paul might say some trust in their works and some in their moral superiority to others, but we trust in the mercy and grace of our God. One day we will stand before the great throne of heaven. The question will be posed to us. What would make a sinner like you worthy of the joy of eternal life, presence, Father? To quote Alistair Begg, our answer cannot start in the first person. It cannot start with, I've done this or I've obeyed that. It can't be my works have earned it or my pedigree makes me worthy. Beloved, our only answer, third person, it will be he, man on the middle cross, said that I could come. Amen. Pray. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, you who showed mercy to us while we were yet sinners, in that Christ died for us paying the price for our sins, earning for us what we could never have done for ourselves. May we remember that every day, the great gift that is ours in Christ Jesus, that we may strive every day not to earn our way into heaven, but that we would live lives filled with joy, filled with thankfulness, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. Work in us every day. Remind us of this truth every day. We ask this in Jesus' name.